Uh, tonight I'm going to give a sketch, maybe 20, 30 minutes, we'll see. Um, and the problem, of course, is this requires much more than a sketch because we're confronted today with the problem that all the kinetic energy the greatest military on Earth cannot stop and no number of masks or amount of social isolation can protect us from. Conservatives concerned with saving their country need a new framework, a new framework to protect old things that we treasure. We must now understand that we're living amidst a great American awakening without God and without forgiveness. We had two other great awakenings in the 1760s and in the 1820s. Today we witness a similar unrelenting quest to work through stain so that purity can be achieved. And the wager today is that we can achieve it through politics, not through religion. Hence my claim that this is an American awakening that needs neither God nor forgiveness. Our historical awakenings focused on Christ, the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as John said it in 129, and I'll say much more about this later. This awakening is man-centric and solipsistic. It involves the narcissistic need to declare oneself to be innocent and free of stain by relocating stain outside of oneself. Not surprisingly, the Bible saw this problem early on. Go back to Genesis 3, 12 and 13. I am innocent. Eve says the serpent is responsible. Adam says God who gave him Eve is responsible. This first story is the most primordial story in, in the book of Genesis, which makes it a deep and intractable problem. If biblical religion has faltered, if neither the law for Jews nor the gospel for Christians is available to bring about atonement, in what then does atonement consist? I will return to that in a bit because we have to really understand that identity politics is searching for a very specific kind of atonement. But first, consider broad, seemingly unrelated evidence of this awakening that intends to route out stain so that we can find security. First, purity. First, some words. You know them. You've been called them. Hater, denier, fascist, Nazi, Islamophobe, transphobe, misogynist, homophobe, authoritarian, and more recently, insurrectionist. These words carry the power to banish and to exile. Once they've been uttered, the comportment of both the accuser and the accused visibly changes. The accuser beams with the iridescent light of discharged raged. The accused slinks back into the darkness, shamed by the leprosy of his irredeemable stain. An unbridgeable gap has opened up between them. They stand on the opposite side of an impenetrable border wall within the community which they were both members just a few minutes ago. Identity politics adherents declare that visible borders between nations should be abolished. Yet there will always be borders. Abolish them in one place and they will emerge in another. Identity politics inv erects invisible borders between the pure and the stained. Second, we talk about cancel culture, but we have yet worked out a precise definition and how it's related to those words. We talk about virtue signaling, but it's not yet precisely related to those words or to cancel culture. And we have to ask the question, how might it be? And here's my hint. Virtue is of Greek origin. What we're witnessing has nothing to do with Greek virtue, but has something to do with categories you find in the Bible. We talk about being woke, 
yet we've not explicitly linked it to the, to the purge words, as I'll call them, to cancel culture or to virtue signaling. We have seriously call out TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, but cannot connect it theoretically to the other phenomena I'm here grouping together. What function, for example, does the cathartic rage of TDS really serve? Let's go further. We talk about clean energy and dirty fossil fuels and know that something more than science is involved in the calls to eliminate the latter. But in what way, for example, is this related to TDS and to the other phenomena I'm identifying? We lack theory. We hear about toxic masculinity and know there's something deeply malignant about the charge, but we do not see that it too is linked to cathartic rage. We have to figure out how. Why the word toxin, for example? Within what scheme does it achieve coherence? We hear about microaggressions and unconscious bias, but what really is going on here? Within what framework is the idea that we are guilty without even knowing it makes sense? Hint, it only makes sense within the Christian framework that gives us original sin. Identity politics is the perversion of Christianity. We hear a great deal about the need to clamp down on hate speech and intimate that its purpose is less to protect than to purge. What's the larger framework we should use to think about it? All of these phenomena must now be corralled together and understood in terms of scapegoating, which involves identifying impurity and purging it from the body social. Purge words are perhaps well intended or intended to purge persons or groups from the social body. Cancel culture cancel is again scapegoating. Virtue signaling is not virtue signaling. We have to stop calling it that. It is innocence signaling. It's covering yourself over with innocence and as a kind of Passover ritual. Go see Exodus 12, 23 for the beginning of it. Uh, so, uh, and wokeness too is part of this. So woke capitalism specifically is a kind of Passover ritual that pays the ransom you owe because you're white. Going green is a desperate attempt that the filth of man can be purged from the planet. Toxic masculinity is the call to purge poisons from the body social through scapegoating. Microaggressions and unconscious bias. Christianly understood, this is the recognition that all of us suffer from being self-referential and prideful. For identitarians, on the other hand, it's the call to cleanse or purify the transgressors who alone suffer from irredeemable sin and give a pass to so-called innocent victims who do not need a pass because innocence is stain-free. In China this year, it's the year of the ox. We were told in America it was going to be the year of unity. Instead, 2021 is the year of the scapegoat. If all this is not enough to convince you that there's a kind of unified vision, consider this. The scapegoat that identity politics currently offers up for sacrifice is the white heterosexual man. If purged, identitarians imagine, the world itself, along with the remaining groups in it, will be cleansed from stain. Without exception, every major action item of the Democratic Party today is traceable to this supposition. Democratic Party pushback against national borders. It's unwavering insistence that the fundamental political and economic transformations are necessary to address climate change. It's discussed with dirty fossil fuels. It's demand for wealth redistribution and the resolve that every mediating institution in which citizens gather must be altered so as to become more inclusive. All of these have as their root the supposition that the nation state, market commerce, petrochemicals that fuel it, the conventional generative family, our civic institutions and our religious institutions are unclean because of the hand white heterosexual man has had in building and maintaining them. Question, why not analyze these phenomena under the, under the broad umbrellas of progressivism, cultural Marxism or multiculturalism? As so many of us are tempted to do today. Yes, like 
Progressivism, identity politics, makes the state grow stronger. Uh, but progressivism is not the source of identity politics. Progressivism concluded that it was not, citizens were not up the to the task of self-governance and therefore sought rule by expertise. Identity politics is authorized not on the basis of expert competence, but on the basis of elite purity. Yes, identity politics like cultural Marxism marches through our institutions, but identity politics is penetrated by them not by force, but by invitation. This is what we must understand. The sense that we get from the, the cultural Marxism argument is that it was a long slog through the institutions. What has been so remarkable is that overnight identity politics has penetrated every institution in America and we have to ask the question, why did this happen? It's happened by invitation. Black Lives Matter has raised over $90 million from corporations in the last year. By invitation. K through 12 is embracing 16-19 curriculum across the country by invitation. Marxism is immiscible with the American regime. Class is not a native category to liberal America. That's why it could not work. That's why it had to be a long slog through the institutions. Identity politics plays on the central category to American civilization, and that is biblical guilt. Marx captured Europe. Freud, who was concerned with psychological guilt, captured America. We have to understand the difference. Multiculturalism, let's be generous. It seeks to expand the franchise to groups that pluralism purportedly rendered invisible. Identity politics is spiritual eugenics, fixed on your intersectionality score, which seeks not the full visibility of everybody, but the invisibility of many, notably white heterosexual males, as the necessary cost for making others visible. So where does identity politics come from? The immediate cause, I think, is the collapse of the mainline churches post-Vietnam. Identity politics is the migration of the categories of purity and stain out of the churches and into politics. The Pew Charitable Trust recently did, you know this, the study which so many Americans now call themselves nuns. And my argument is, you're looking in the wrong place and you're asking the wrong question. America is still captivated by the categories of purity and stain and the churches gave up on giving it to them. And so what they did was they moved out into the realm of politics and now young people have a spiritual economy on the basis of which they can assess purity and stain and that's called identity politics and that's why the churches have been abandoned because they have given up on that charge. Uh, I want to make a quick comparison between Marxism and identity politics on slightly different lines. Some of you know this claim. So Eric Vogelin was a very famous political philosopher and he said famously that Marxism immunitized the eschaton. And what he meant by that was, it took the Christian threefold category of original innocence, loss and diremption, reunification, and it transposed it into an actual historical scheme. Primitive communism, the long slog through history, ending penultimately in late capitalism and utter alienation, followed by the redemption of the world in communism. Marxism immunitized the eschaton. Uh, identity politics immunitizes the scapegoat because with Christianity you have a divine scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. What you have with identity politics is an imminent scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. You have to purge him and all the stains of the world will disappear. My sense of this, and, and I, uh, I don't want to reach this conclusion, but here are my, my conclusions about where this goes. There are only three logical possibilities. One, we continue to slog on 
with the invocation of these Christian categories without their larger Christian framework. Uh, and we purge more and more people, and people realize there's something terribly wrong about this, but they have no way to conceptualize the depth of the problem. The second is that these categories of scapegoat, purity, innocence, stain, transgression get put back into their Christian category so that we can return to what I call in the book liberal competence. And the third category is the one that scares me the most. And I see it developing in Europe and in some places in America. Namely, that a, a generation will, will reach what Bob Woodson has called racial fatigue. Uh, they'll reach the point where the burden of sin is so grave, the burden of fault is so grave that they say, we don't care anymore. And that's actually what Nietzsche proposed in the second essay, The Genealogy of Morals, if you want to go see it. He said, how do you have a tomorrow? And he said, Christians have a tomorrow by transgression, atonement, and repentance, this never-ending cycle. And that's the only way Christians can have a tomorrow. He said, we can't do that anymore. The only way we can have a tomorrow, a real tomorrow, to rebuild a culture of, of aristocratic cruelty, which is what he wanted, was to forget. And so the movements on the alt-right that are now doing this are saying, yes, America had slavery, and we don't care. We, we're going to forget. And especially in Europe. Yes, there was colonialism. Yes, there were two world wars. Yes, there was the Holocaust. And we don't care. We're going to forget. These are serious threats, and they are nearly invited by identity politics, because identity politics points out the burden of your stain with no possible way of repentance. Let me, uh, let me tell you quickly about the identity politics plan. You know it. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's diversity, but not pluralism, as Madison understood it. It's the subsumption of difference under a monovalent category identity. There, I said it, the technical word for it. But why must we all have identities? Who decided all of a sudden we're going to have identities? 20 years ago, nobody used the term. And now everybody says they have an identity. I would strongly urge you as conservatives to reject the category entirely. Never use the word, I have an American identity. And never ask the question, and I've heard this in conservative circles, what is the American identity? Get rid of the term. Don't play the game. Don't play the game also by advocating viewpoint diversity. That's not, we're not going to win within that. Abandon the idea. The objective should not be to work within the framework of diversity, but to reveal that the call for diversity is no such thing at all. Third, diversity is a political program ostensibly committed to group visibility, but which recognizes only certain members of groups. Trump supporting whites, black conservatives, traditional mothers, conservative gays and lesbians cannot exist within the rubric of diversity. Hence, the Clarence Thomas problem on the left. Second, equity, but not equality. Equity in the form of equal, equality in the form of equal access is concerned with giving even the least among us a chance to advance. Equity is concerned that members of certain groups, often well paid already, get even because of the bigots if you're black or the misogynists if you're a woman who have up to now stood in your way. Equity intends not just redistribution, but also retribution, which is its deeper motivation. Elites in universities and corporations want equity. Non-elites simply want equality of opportunity. Equity is anti-equality. It seeks to purge. Purging is the new fairness on the left. Inclusion, third, via excision. Pluralism handles difference in a different way. Within pluralism, you have the rule and then you have the exception to the rule. 
And a robust pluralistic society will work in exactly that way. And so it will defend traditional families and our churches. And it might say, well, but on the edges, because we're a liberal tolerant society, there are these other things, exceptions to the rule. But in identity politics, the exception is the rule, which is to say the farther out you go, you must abide by that exception. So now if you're going to push transgenderism, it turns out that you are heteronormative and cisgender if you're not tolerant of that group. So we have two choices. The exception of the, uh, to the rule and the exception is the rule. And we have to fight for the former and show that the latter has nothing to do with inclusion. It has everything to do with excision. More on the identity politics plan. In what does atonement consist? In America, you atone for racial guilt by renouncing all of the institutions implicated by it. Renounce the generative family, the churches, our history, and our monuments, our founding, our nation. In Europe, you atone for colonialism, two world wars, and the Holocaust by renouncing your nation, which is the project of the EU today. So what does the identity politics plan look like in practice? Further growth of the state to save us from systemic racism that is so grave that none of the Tocquevillian meeting institutions can save us. It also means the ugly collaboration of elite whites and elite people of color against the least among us. Non-elite whites in this equation are racists. Non-elite people of color are much-needed permanent dependents of the state that proves systemic racism exists. Also, you will have the never-ending fixation on the scapegoat. During the Kavanaugh hearings, it was misogyny. Every man was a rapist. Today it is racism, which aims at scapegoating whiteness. Soon it will be climate, not climate change, we, don't, we shouldn't call it that, we need to call it what it is, climate stain. That's what they're really concerned about, okay? One Emmanuel Goldstein, my reference is 1984, some of you know this, one Emmanuel Goldstein after another to keep citizens in a perpetual state of cathartic rage, which makes it impossible for us to build a world together. Tocqueville said, a tyrant will forgive citizens for not loving him, provided they do not love each other. The greatest way to concentrate hands in the power of the state is to make it impossible for us to work together, and the cathartic rage of identity politics is the perfect recipe. What we must do. First, we have to gather all the phenomena together under the umbrella of scapegoating. No more word or concept sloppiness. We, we have all these disparate phenomena, we call them different things, but we have to now focus all of our energies on renaming them. When somebody says it's cancel culture, no, it's scapegoating. We have to go through each one of these and identify them as an aspect of the scapegoating identity politics. We have to alter the language. All these aspects, all these are aspects of the same problem. The pathetic hope that by scapegoating and purging a group from the body social, all uncleanliness can be removed and we can build a world free from impurity. That is the project. Also, I think we have to remind everyone that scapegoating identity politics undertakes is a sick derivative of the Christian understanding of the divine scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. Identity politics seems to be anti-religious. It is a profound distortion of Christianity, and we have to remind people of that every step of the way. Third, we have to disclose how identity politics adopts what I call the black American template of innocence and will end up scapegoating a vast majority of them. And the argument? Civil rights goes to women's rights, goes to gay rights, goes to transgender rights. Can it be the case, however, that black Americans 
who, like Martin Luther King, believed in the generative family and the church can really be purged because they're now heteronormative and attend a homophobic church? How can this possibly be so? Black Americans are the greatest ally America has as a whole. I've said this on a number of occasions. Only black America has the moral authority to call an end to this tomorrow. And this is why people like Bob Woodson and Glenn Lowry and Ian Rowe and uh, uh, Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal, there's a whole bunch of them who see this very, very clearly and we need to work together with them. I think also we have to refuse the category white on government forms and in public and private conversations. We need to return to national origin. If we must abide by 153 pronouns, why must so many of us abide by the unequivocal category of white? Refuse the category. Uh, Arthur is, I think, on the absolute forefront of, of uh, the problem of hate speech. The difficulty is once cathartic rage gets started, it's, it's, one can see how the First Amendment protections are going to be overrun. And so we have to support Arthur and everyone who is trying to the best of their ability to push back against this hate speech. It's, they're not trying to protect hate speech. They're trying to purge its cathartic rage. That's what this is all about. As we all know, once that gets started, it's really, really difficult to stop. And as we, we will see whether, the, in fact, the First Amendment is strong enough to protect us. One last thing, which I just realized the other day. We have foreign friends. Some of you may be following this. Macron is really upset about how wokeness is penetrating the French universities. We have to work with these people. Okay, this is not something we can work out in the American context. Europe is faced with this too. Finally, a, a strange word of hope because while I, I sound like I'm, I'm despairing, I'm actually not. Because here's the good news. The categories are biblical categories. Transgression and innocence, purity and sin. These are biblical categories. And so what we're faced with is a profound distortion, an enemy in effect that has emerged from within. A deep distortion and perversion of the fundamental Christian understanding about how sin can be overcome. Let me stop there. Uh, it's all in the book.